Our Lord Jesus Christ uh, now brings us to this time and we listen to his voice in his word. And I always like to stress that um, it is an amazing mystery that God takes former enemies, redeems them, and even calls them to preach or teach or counsel the word. It is really astounding. I, I would dare say that the angels marvel and the demons tremble at what is this redeeming grace of God. So uh, once again, we come to God's word, and I'm my heart's prayer, my desire is uh, for uh, the Lord to help all of us hear his word and to help me as I bring the word. I thank the Lord uh, for Pastor Stephen's ministry, and uh, for those of you who might be visiting, our pastor is away and uh, due back in the next couple of days on vacation. So I've been serving as an elder here, and he asked me if uh, I would bring the word today. And I'm, I'm grateful for uh, Pastor Stephen. He sat down with me and talked with me about uh, what do we bring to the people the Sunday um, after Resurrection Sunday. So we talked about different passages, and um, uh, I mean, he left it with me, but he had some very good insights and challenged my thinking. It really stirred my heart. And so I came to this passage today, 1 Peter chapter 2, because it speaks about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus say, I will build my church? What was all wrapped up in that when he said that to Peter and he said upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it well it's interesting the word in their language that we when we're reading it here church in their language the word it was a simple Greek word and I'm not one to like throw around words but I just want you to hear it for a minute here it's ecclesia and you, maybe you've heard the term ecclesiastical, talking about church stuff. Well, that's where it comes from, ecclesia. And it's a word that means to be called out. It's the called out ones. It was used for any assembly where people were called out for a meeting. Technically, Wednesday night, we have an ecclesia occurring. We have a called out meeting to do our church business. Acts chapter 20, I think it is, where there's the, the great riot in the stadium uh, because Paul's message has been so blessed by God that uh, thousands or hundreds of idolaters in Ephesus are giving up their idols, and the idol makers are all upset. They're losing good money, and a riot ensues. And finally, the magistrates have to come, settle down the whole thing, and they say, we're in danger of Rome coming down on our heads because we have no legal reason for this ecclesia today. I wonder if, well, let's put it this way, that it was a common word that they would use for the called out meetings, for policy, for judgments, legal decisions, I was thinking about it. I almost wonder if Jesus had a little bit of a smile on his face and he says, I'm going to have an ecclesia and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Imagine that. The local town board will be meeting on Thursday to determine policy and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those two grumpy guys might, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's just a, a powerful picture 
And it's just this idea, God, Jesus saying, I'm going to assemble my people. And the gates of hell will not overpower my assembly. Maybe you've heard of the denomination, the assembly of God. Why do they use that term? Well, that, this is the reason. They're trying to lay hold of a term from the Bible, and they're trying to stir a picture in the minds of their people. Well, what a policy assembly that Jesus has here. And uh, what makes for a church? And I, I'm going to add a few comments here. Um, I have, uh, I've had a good friend in the past. I haven't been in touch with him for a while, but back when we were on Long Island, he was involved in kind of a regional youth ministry, Christian ministry for crisis counseling and mentoring and restoration for at-risk youth. And um, he was sitting, and he was on staff, so he was sitting talking to me. And um, he said, I really don't like our mission statement. And I said, why not? He said, well, it says that our mission is to uh, reach and restore as many teens in our region as possible uh, to Christ. So I said, well, what's wrong with the statement? He says, that's the church's job. Now, he was on staff with the organization. He says, that's not our job. That's the church's job. And he says, we are to serve the church in its mission to reach as many teens at risk and restore them to Christ. He had a very clear idea of what his role was. Uh, these other ministries, uh, sometimes you'll hear the term parachurch, like parallel, two lines running alongside. So there's a term, parachurch, meaning these extra ministries. We have them in our area here. We have camp ministries. We have conferences that go on. There are international youth ministries. There are ministries of all sorts, but none of those ministries are the church. Now, those ministries are used, or pardon me, those, those ministries are staffed and moved along by members of the body of Christ, but they are not the church. It's very interesting when the Lord talks about the church, and uh, you'll see in the New Testament, oftentimes it's woven together, both the church worldwide as well as those local gatherings. And one way we can keep it straight in our minds of why those other ministries aren't a church is because in the New Testament there are over 30 one another commands. Jesus, as <clears throat> he's talking to the disciples, said to them, I give you a new command, love one another. So you have the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. You have the great commission, go out and make disciples. And then Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command, love one another. And under the umbrella of love one another are all these one another commands. Care for one another, admonish one another, exhort one another, teach one another, counsel one another. On and on it goes, over 30 of them, which imply the local assembly of the church is a body of believers that are always to be deeply involved in each other's lives. That's how the Lord designed it. That there should be so much of a connection that goes on among the believers 
that we have that kind of ministry, involvement, words, and actions to carry out those one another commands. Um, those local assemblies, many of sometimes they exist without a shepherding leader or shepherds, but we'll notice in the New Testament that when Paul and other leaders would find assemblies, they would also make sure that they got some shepherding care. So those two are kind of tied together also. Uh, if a church doesn't have a pastor, a pastor resigns or passes away or whatever, it's still an assembly, but it needs to be shepherded and cared for. So those two elements are closely connected together. Maybe I could put it this way. If, <clears throat> if the uh, manager of the New York Yankees retired, would the New York Yankees cease to exist? Well, no. But then would you say, well, then they don't need a manager? Well, they do. So just kind of get that picture that that assembly, that group can exist and live together, but also there's an element where it needs to be shepherded and cared for. So just to get that picture in our mind a little bit. So we come to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> I ask your forbearance with me. Those of you who've known me long enough know that now that we're in mud season, spring is coming. This is what happens to my throat. It doesn't fail. Every year. Okay, so bear with me, please. So as we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, coming off of great and wonderful statements about the precious blood of Christ, how we're redeemed, and how we're to live out our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, now brings us into some great statements about the church. What are God's purposes for us when we gather as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What are God's purposes? Now, I'm going to describe it four ways. And if you're reading the word and you're thinking, I would describe that differently, please be my guest. Mine is maybe just to set out some ideas, let the word of God shape your mind differently. The spirit of God takes it in a different direction. Here are four purposes that I'm going to describe today from this passage. To draw near to Christ himself. That's one of purposes, and we gather together to draw near to Christ himself. To grow together as the temple of Christ. We'll see that a little more. To prepare to tell about new life in Christ and to prepare to live for Christ. Now, I read from verses 1 to 12, and I'm going to really take us from verses 4 through 12. So first of all, God's purpose is for us to draw near to Christ himself. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And that opening phrase, as you come to him, in their language has ongoing action. As you are coming to him. And it doesn't just mean coming. I mean, there's two kinds of coming. If... Um, if I say the UPS guy is coming to our house today, well, he's not really, he's dropping off a package. But if I were to say um, that uh, Jim and Lori Abbott are coming to our house, well, that's different. They're not dropping off a pass package. What they're doing is drawing near. There's fellowship. There's a close bond. That is what he means by coming. It is a drawing near that is happening. We talk about coming to church, but technically, b 
biblically how the Holy Spirit sees it. No, I'm not having you go to church. I'm having you go to Christ. You are here to come to Christ, to draw close to him. Now, we use the term come to Christ when we talk about someone first becoming a believer. Some of you remember well the day. I remember well the day I came to Christ. But the Holy Spirit says, I'm always working to bring you to Christ. That we are to draw near to Christ himself. Three times in these verses, he is referred to as precious. The one that we honor. We keep coming to him. And this is an interesting thing too, the way the, the word is. They had uh, something in their language, in their how they talked, that was called the middle voice. But I'll, I'll explain how that happens. For instance, if I said... Um, that um, I rotated the tires on my car. That's active voice. If I say that David rotated the car uh, tires on my car, that's passive. If I say I had David rotate the tires on my car, that's middle. That means there's some from him and some from me. I brought him the car. He did the work. There it is in the middle. So he's, in, he's showing us here that as you are coming to him, it's in this middle voice, meaning the Holy Spirit is drawing us and we're responding. We're coming to the Spirit of God for him to draw us into Christ. Both parties are involved in this. That when we assemble, we are assembling so that we can draw near to Christ. I want to have that planted in our minds today, the when we get ready on a Sunday morning or for Wednesday night or for a fellowship meal or for the communion services, that we stir that in our hearts and minds. Lord, you are calling me to draw near to Christ and have that stir and move in our hearts. <clears throat> I want to show you something else too. Please notice it says, we are coming to him as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And you'll notice more than once, he brings up this tension between those of us who know Christ and those who don't. The very one rejected by the world is the one who's precious to us, and he's called a living stone. That's not the same word as rock when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. This is a stone that is actually shaped and dressed for a fitting. Any of you that have ever done stonework or brickwork, masonry work, and you know that there are times with the stone or the brick or the granite, whatever it might be, there might be chiseling that has to be done, shaping that has to be done, and this is remarkable. He is a living stone. There's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? A living stone. I mean, sometimes I'm as dumb as a rock, but he is a living stone, and we think, how did he have to be shaped? And here's some of the mystery of Jesus coming in the flesh. Hebrews, for instance, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. He was fitted for us as a high priest by his sufferings for us and with us. We have a living Savior, a living stone in this temple who has been shaped by the Heavenly Father 
to know what we need. Now, that takes us into great mystery how Jesus is truly God and truly man. How that little baby was indeed God himself in that manger at Bethlehem. How astounding. We are drawing near to one who has been shaped by the Heavenly Father to know just how to care for us. So we're drawn to him. We are drawn to the one who is the living stone in the temple, drawn to the one to care for us. And I want to stress here, too, about being drawn to him. Because I think it's important we consider even what happens with us and the Lord Jesus Christ at his table. Communion table, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, communion, the breaking of bread. The scriptures use different terms for this. Here's, there's a problem. There's a problem generally we have because we, are, we stand on the scripture that the bread and the cup do not literally become the body and blood of Jesus. And because we stand on the scripture that the bread and the cup do not save us from our sins. <clears throat> the problem and the danger is we suddenly begin to think, well, then, Nothing much really happens then anyhow. I can kind of take it or leave it. It's not overly significant because nothing really happens. There's that problem. It's subtle. But over the years of ministry, I've seen that sneak into people's thinking. We have to watch out. I made a list of some of those effects of the Lord's table. And there's nothing I'm going to have on this list that you have not been aware, every true believer here has been aware of in some way through the work of the Holy Spirit at the Lord's table. But I thought I'd just make a list. What happens at the Lord's table? And this is a very important part of us drawing near. We remember our salvation with great praise and thanks. We consider our sin in God's mercy. We feast and call on his abundant grace and love. We enjoy a more personal closeness with Jesus as Savior, but also as our elder brother at his table. We ponder together the glory of being called his brothers and sisters. We remember the gifts of his obedience and his sacrifice in our place and for us. We humble ourselves before his holiness We confess our sins to him as our great high priest. We're drawn more tenderly toward one another in true fellowship. We rededicate ourselves to his service in the church and the world. We stir questions of faith in our children when they watch. We celebrate and display his victory and his promised return. We should never think nothing happens at the Lord's table. We should have the grandest ideas of what is happening as we draw close to the Savior. So that's one of the purposes, that we draw near to Christ himself. But also, one of, another of God's purposes, that we grow together as the temple of Christ. Uh, why did the believers in the past build these 
astounding cathedrals, most of which in the world are museums now, but uh, why did they build these astounding cathedrals? Well, they had it half right. They thought the church building should reflect the glory of Christ's temple, but they lost the fact that the greatest beauty of the Lord's temple on earth is you and me, redeemed out of sin, carrying the glory of Christ in our lives. There is nothing more beautiful on the face of the earth than Jesus Christ's redeemed sinners. We can't see it because we have to live with each other. We can't always catch it. But when the Heavenly Father looks at us, he sees us through the shed blood of Christ. He sees where he's taken us from. He sees where he's taking us to. He sees what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. And it is the most beautiful temple on the face of this earth is the assembly of redeemed sinners. Now, you you could say, well, sounds like when Paul wrote some of his letters, there were some real problems. Yes, there were, because he had to move people back to the beauty of the local temple for Jesus Christ. And what he says here, look at verse 5, you yourselves like living stones. So now Jesus is the living stone at the cornerstone. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, this temple, when we come together, he assembles his temple on earth. Here we are assembled together. Every one of you that truly knows Jesus Christ, you came in as a living stone. And if you have sensitivity to his word and the Holy Spirit's work, you will not leave the same way. It might be subtle. You may not be aware of it. It may not occur to you till Tuesday. I don't know. But he's taking me and he's taking you and he's shaping us a little more to fit in with the cornerstone Jesus. The cornerstone was how the architects determined for the Masons on laying out the direction, then the size, and the orientation of the building that was going up. So if this was a cornerstone, it'd be laid out, and here was its position. That means one wall is going this way to be squared off. Another wall is going that way to be squared off. And the cornerstone also by its size would show how big this building can be. And it's marvelous because... The more we see the greatness of our Savior, the greater the size and beauty of his church. But we are being shaped regularly to be fitted in with Jesus Christ. We grow together as the temple of Christ. And it says here, in that role, in this living temple, which incidentally is never the same every week. I don't just don't mean the attendance is not exactly the same. It's just not the same every week. We keep growing. We keep changing. We keep moving ahead with Christ. We're never exactly the same. And part of this is we become the spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Now, some of you have known the Lord for a while. You know this is true. If you're new to the Lord, this is a new concept to you. 
You might be from a background that what Stephen or Leard or Ed or I do, like we're the priests. No, well, we're only priests in the sense like you are priests. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a priest. It's not something bestowed when you get to be 18 years old or something. Now you're legally a priest for Jesus. No, when a 10-year-old boy comes to Jesus, he becomes a priest for Jesus Christ. I threw out that 10-year-old. I was 11 years old. I didn't know that at the time. I suddenly had my heart changed, and he took me out of this profound, dark, whoa, selfishness. Changed my heart, and I actually began to care about people. I didn't realize what was going on at the time. But I had become a priest for Jesus Christ. And you did too when you came to Christ as Savior. You are a priest for Jesus Christ. Old or young, man or woman, whatever your background, whatever your place in life, you are a priest for Jesus Christ. And he puts this contrast here for us to realize how astounding this is. He's laying the cornerstone. He's precious. We're precious to him. People who reject this, they're tripping over Christ And he's impressing upon us, remember, these people that have rejected Christ, they do not see how precious the Savior is. And to us, he is what's most precious about life. What are the spiritual sacrifices we offer up? We don't bring animals like in the Old Testament days. These sacrifices are enriching and life-giving. So I just checked in the scriptures, in the New Testament, what are these spiritual sacrifices. One of them is praise and worship. We are offering spiritual sacrifices to God when we praise and worship. Giving of thanks is a spiritual sacrifice. Doing good in our world toward our neighbor is a spiritual sacrifice. Sharing with others is a spiritual sacrifice. Witnessing to unbelievers is a spiritual sacrifice. Offering our bodies for service to Christ is a spiritual sacrifice. Pouring ourselves into other believers' lives is a spiritual sacrifice. Giving money and other resources for the church's ministry is a spiritual sacrifice. Setting a godly example for other believers to follow is a spiritual sacrifice. Praying for others is a spiritual sacrifice. Those are the sacrifices we offer to God in this living temple. And by the way... I think you've heard me say it before, but something I had to learn after a while. I want you to think about the people you know that don't know Christ. There isn't a single one of them that doesn't have something, crisis, burden going on in their life. And one of the powerful door openers for the grace of Christ that you can do for them, because they're not getting this anywhere else, is you can pray for them and pray out loud with them right then. I've I've been in ministry 50 years. One time I had a lady turn me down when I wanted to pray for her. One time. She goes, no, you don't need to pray for me. I mean, she was, don't want to. I have had the most hardened people soften in crisis. And I said, may I pray for you? And They're not looking for some fancy prayer. They're looking for the hope 
that maybe there is a God there who does care and you're going to lift them up by name for God's help for them. And I've shared some of the stories. You know them too. It is amazing what the Lord does to show his presence and power that when you pray for them, watch for God to answer. Just wanted to mention that one. So here we are when we come together, one of another God's purposes that we grow together is the temple of Christ. Also, <clears throat> pardon me, excuse me. When we gather together and assemble, another of God's purposes is to prepare us to tell about our new life in Christ. So let's go down to verses uh, 9 and 10. Now he's coming off the contrast of those that are rejecting Christ. And he wants to impress upon us who we are and how that shapes us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He has some interesting descriptions here, a chosen race. I checked different translations. I think one of them, one of the more modern ones, I think catches a little bit better, better that you're, it's race, it's where we get the word genealogy. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate race because in our culture, race is like what color is your skin and what's your ethnic background. He is saying you are a chosen family line. And this is, comes out clearly in Romans when Paul says, he says, if he says, you are Abraham's sons and daughters if you have the faith of Abraham. You don't have to be ethnically Jewish to be from Abraham's line. If you have the faith of Abraham in the God who forgives those who turn to him in faith, you're his son and daughter. That's the chosen family line. You think about it. How many of us would really even be together in any situation if it weren't for Jesus? I mean, some days we're, we're glad we have Jesus so we can get along, right? Okay, but if really, I mean, why are we together? We are together because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a chosen family shaped by him. And you think of what you've experienced and what you yourself have shared and sought to do for fellow family members in this assembly. I look out here and I can't, I, I could take an hour and point to different people and tell you what this person did as my brother or sister in Christ for my life. I could go up and down the rows, up and down the rows. And you've experienced it too. He says you are that chosen family, a royal priesthood, and carries the idea that we're a whole kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is the one nation 
that is special in God's plan. Not the United States of America. That may come as a shock to you. Just read the news. Uh, But rather, we are the holy nation planted inside unholy nations. We are a people for his possession. You are a treasure to him. In fact, in Ephesians, he counts it a joy to say he gets to inherit you. I mean, we have an inheritance from Christ. He, our Heavenly Father counts it a joy that he gets to inherit us for eternity because we're purchased by the blood of Christ. I want, you can take that one all week long and ponder that. I'm, I'm, the glory and majesty and grace and shed blood of Jesus must be astounding that my Heavenly Father counts it a joy to inherit me for heaven. We are his special possession. It says here that you may proclaim, and that means announce out. It's the closest word they had in their language for advertising. So let's take a stretch here. That you may advertise the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're the people of God or God's people. I'm, I'm, some of this is in memory from another translation. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And it's really great. Some of you know this closing phrase, you've received mercy. He actually takes mercy and turns it into a verb. I love this. He says, you've been mercied. Man, I'm glad he, he's mercied me. We come together. This is all about our new life. We come together to prepare to tell about the new life we have in Christ. The new life we have in him. But then he finishes also with another reason, another purpose of God when we come together. And that's to prepare to live for Christ. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now remember, he's making the stress. Let's just... Get it again here in our minds. So we're this temple, this glorious temple, the most beautiful temple on the face of the earth are the assemblies where Jesus Christ is truly preached and the people know Christ. We're planted in a world that is hostile against Jesus Christ. We find it among family members, co-workers, and neighbors, those that stumble over Christ. And here we are. And with that theme in mind, we come to verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, and that word means way of life among the Gentiles, and he's using that term meaning the common people of the nations, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's pulled together several pictures here, sojourners, exiles. We're not home yet. It is natural in our flesh, and this is true of believers anywhere in the world, to want to be at home with their culture and where they live. That's just natural. It is a natural sense of us, but we have to be very careful and remember, we're not really home yet. There are times... And I'm sure you've experienced it, all you who know Christ, where he broke the hold on something 
that you wanted desperately because you wanted to feel at home with that thing, whatever it was. He had to break the hold because you're not home yet. We're sojourners and exiles. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. The word abstain means back away. It does not mean see how close you can get without getting burned. If you have that translation, you need a new translation. That's a bad translation. It means back away from the passions of the flesh. Back away. We have sometimes see these little toddlers. We do not say to them, you can play around the flame on the stove. Just don't touch the flame. No, it's get away from the stove. <laughs> that is what the Spirit of God is saying. Back away. And those passions, we hear passions, and of course we think of sexual immorality, and that is one that really does destroy lives and marriages and people's walk with Christ, that's for sure. But there are other passions that take over where there is greed, and there's gluttony, and there's lust after things, and wanting man's approval. He says, get back away from those. Back up. Go to war against that, because he says... These things wage war against your soul. And this is really interesting, this term wage war against your soul. It means battle strategy. It's okay. Hold on there. Okay, brother? Okay, so, all right. So, I love it when he's right in there with me. So, the, um, the wage war against your soul is a term for battle strategy. Your flesh, your sin, the sinfulness inside your own human nature and mine has a battle strategy to destroy my faith. I carry it with me every day. I carry in my own sinful humanness a battle strategy to destroy myself. Have you ever had that where something's tempting and you're thinking... I think I could kind of work around this. That's your battle strategy to destroy your faith. Some of you today might be deep up to your earlobes because you went with that battle strategy. And I'm here to tell you Jesus Christ is ready to restore it. These wage against your soul. Keep your conduct, your way of life so honorable that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and it's worded in a way that, which means as they are watching. I am telling you, even those that are hostile against you in some setting, they are watching. I had a relative we were burdened for for years, and then finally one day she called me. She had come to Christ the Savior, and weeping, she had watched my life, watched my brother's life, and... And, and she told us that she had come to Christ. But what was very interesting about it is we didn't really think she was paying attention. She was watching everything. And you know this too. Some of you came to Christ because you were watching some other believer. I've told you a story about Norm Berner, a man we knew in New Jersey. He's with the Lord now. And he was simply a crew leader on a tree trimming company. And um, if there was a dangerous situation after a storm and limbs are down on a roof and the roof's all soaked and there's maybe dangerous wires around, Norm would say to his crew of unsaved guys, I'll go up on the roof. That's too dangerous for any of you. If I die, I know I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus. If you die, I don't know where you're going to be. 
Well, Pete and Naya watched Norm's life and came to Christ, and I got to baptize Pete and Naya. Pete told me, he says, Norm Berner is the best example of a Christian I had ever seen. I didn't ask him if I was on the list anywhere. I just thought <laughs> sometimes there's quite just questions you don't want to ask. You know, who knows? I might have been an obstacle for all I know. But Norm lived that out, and Peter was watching that. Uh, and that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is interesting. In the Old Testament, when God would visit, that means his glory shows up. We started off with Jesus, the living stone and a living temple, and we come and we visit with him, we draw close to him, but he closes with a picture that as the grace of Jesus Christ works in sinners' hearts, they come to Christ, God visits them, and they know it's him. There's no doubt in my mind, when I was 11 years old, my brother wasn't talking me into anything. I was disinterested. And then that night, lying in that bed, and I can still picture it, God visited me and opened my eyes to Christ. And every one of you that knows Christ, God visited you. He says, they will glorify God on that day. Our daughter got a phone call from a friend from high school, and she was off in college. Uh, the girl was off in college, had gone to a Bible study, came to know Christ as Savior, called up our daughter and said, I want you to know I've become a believer in Jesus. And then told her all the way she was watching our daughter's life. Our daughter was like, she had no idea. They're watching. And then when they meet Christ, when God visits them, they glorify God. They praise God. You see, we are here to prepare to live for Christ. This is how special this assembly is to our God. This assembly right now is one of the most astounding moments that's happening on the face of this earth, and it's happening throughout the world. If all you have is, well, I go to church and I get my sermon, you need Christ. You need Christ. You don't need a little bit of religion or you know, sprinkling. No, you need Jesus Christ, the living stone. You need to be drawing near to him. If you have been stubbornly fighting against him, lay down your rebellion and come to the king who is waiting to love your soul. If you are trapped in your eyeballs, up to your eyeballs, with some sin that's overtaken you, some bitterness, some passion, some non-negotiable you have with God, lay that down and come to the one who will love you with an unfailing love like we sang about. If you have been injured and hurt and have had anguish and you're holding on to that bitterness against God, Come and find the Savior who redeems and restores and lifts out of the ashes and then shows you by his grace why he moved that way so that you would come for where real life and love is found. If you've been wandering and straying and getting distracted, it's time to come back 
and be renewed by Christ. The Lord's table has been a time where I can take it or leave it. Come and meet with your Savior when we meet and draw close to him and let his love and grace flood your souls. If you do not know Christ today, come to him today. Hear his call, not mine. He calls you. Come to Christ, the one who died on the cross in your place for your sins. Come to him today. I'll be up front here after the service. If I can pray with anyone for whatever the need, Nancy will be up here too. We are glad to do that. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you for your word now today. I am grateful, Lord, uh, for the help. I was aware you were giving me to be able to even grasp and understand the word. And uh, Lord, your word is wonderful and amazing. And we thank you, Father, we won't leave the same because we are living stones and you're at work. Lord, you know the needs. And especially, Lord, there's someone you are longing to restore, longing to bring to Christ, longing to rescue. Spirit of God, cause them to answer your call and invitation today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.